Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. There are so many ways of practicing meditation and what I'm trying to share with you this weekend uh, is just really, really simple. Most of the practice we've done this weekend is about meditating on the breath and then this morning um, I shared with you Tonglen practice which you can alternate sometimes with meditating on the breath. Um, the point of meditating on the breath is that if you learn how to meditate on the breath, then slowly you start to realize that it's a meditation practice that's inclusive of all experience. Because as I said this morning, your body is always grounded and always present. But your mind, your imagination is not always present. And things go much better when those two things are lined up with each other, when they're aligned. <clears throat> so, um, have you noticed that sometimes you think you're present, but when you look more closely, you're not really here? Uh, so much of the way that we see is through memory and, of course, through projection. So much projection. Uh, we project uh, fears and dreams onto everything and everybody. So, in meditating on the breath, we're trying to cultivate an awareness that's not tangled up in projection. And that's one of the interesting things about meditating on the sensations of breathing, is you're not meditating on what the breath looks like or how you think it should be, but just on the sensation of breathing. Just on the sensation of breathing. When there's commentary, you just come back again to the sensation of breathing. So just to underline that, one of the characteristics of mindfulness of breathing is there's no commentary. Did everybody hear that? There's no commentary. So if you're breathing and you've got some commentary going on that you're kind of invested in, and the commentary might be like, oh, I'm doing really good at mindfulness of breathing. This is a really good workshop. Um, that's not mindfulness of breathing. Mindfulness of breathing is a somatic experience. Okay? It's not like there's an awareness watching the breathing. It's rather just full feeling of your body breathing. So that's number one, right? Without commentary. But the second point is, and this is the tricky point, is how do you feel the physicality of breathing without manipulating it? <laughs> so how do you feel the breath and leave it alone at the same time? 
Many people, as soon as they turn to the body, have so much projection onto the body, poor body. So much commentary about their body. And also something that happens is as you're turning towards your body, just as you start to make contact with sensations, then lots of commentary gets aroused. And sometimes the commentary is really straightforward, and sometimes it's a little more complex. Like, sometimes if there's somebody who has a lot of anxiety and is used to having like shallow breathing, they'll notice their shallow breathing and suddenly equate that with anxiety. There might not even be anxiety. It just could be shallow breathing that they only identify as anxiety, you see. So how can you just feel your breath as it is? And I say to people too, especially young kids, like, if you ever feel scared, you can find somewhere in your breath, even when you're scared, some place that feels good. It's possible. So our fears around what we might contact in the body produce a lot of commentary. And often, as many of us know, the commentary usually has nothing to do with what's really going on in the body anyways. When you drop down below commentary and you start to feel your breathing body, there's usually a great deal more calm and ease than you realized. There's a whole resource there of ease that you likely haven't had much time with. In yoga, we call this Anandamaya Kosha, which I just translate as everything's okay. <laughs> it's contacting that place in our physical experience where everything's okay. It's okay. And it's making contact with that sheath of somatic experience that makes meditation more relaxing over time. It makes wanting to go to the cushion an enthusiastic endeavor because you know that when you sit there, you can find steadiness, but you can also find a sense of ease. <clears throat> so this brings us to um, the last slogan that we're going to work with today. Which is number nine. We covered seven and eight pretty well, I think, didn't we? This morning? Yeah. Turn things around. Turn things around. This touches on the core of the second chapter of the Yoga Sutra and also touches on the core teachings of the Abhidharma, the Buddha's psychology, which revolve around a really simple teaching, which is that if you look at your experience very closely, you will find something called Vedana, which means feeling tone or hedonic tone. And what this refers to is that all of your experience bottlenecks into pleasant or unpleasant feeling tone. 
And this is a very interesting concept for those of you who have psychology training, which is that in Buddhist psychology, there is a distinction between feelings and emotions. Feeling refers to three different tones, positive, neutral, and unpleasant. And I'm not really going to cover neutral because I'm not convinced that it exists. But for now, let's just say pleasant and unpleasant. Okay. So if you want to turn things around, I hope you all have this hope, that the first thing we have to open up to is that all of human experience goes into this funnel, moment to moment to moment, where we're registering whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Pleasant or unpleasant. If it's pleasant, we want more of it. And if it's unpleasant, we want to get away from it. And if you were here last time I was here at the little church, we spent three days just going through that. There's so much in there. But just to sum up, Oh, and by the way, it was an amazing weekend and such a great neighborhood. Alberta, Alberta neighborhood. The people were so kind. Renee had great hair again. It was really wonderful. <clears throat> so... Most emotions are mental states. Most emotions are actually mental states. 99% of your emotional life is the drama of mental states. Okay? So when you're in a calmer place and you look at what's coming up in experience, but you're looking at it through this experience of just knowing how to feel breathing, then you start to feel how whatever comes up comes up as pleasant or unpleasant, and sometimes neutral, but mostly pleasant and unpleasant. If you don't know how to feel the pleasant without grasping it, then you're going to make some really bad decisions. Has anyone ever made a bad decision <laughs> trying to grasp something that's pleasant? Yes. <coughs> and if there's something unpleasant that you can't tolerate and you can't allow yourself to breathe, then um, you'll try to escape it, likely with some unethical choices. And I think all of us know that the high mortality rate amongst adolescents seems to be directly related to this inability to uh, tolerate what's unpleasant and to delay gratification. And that's why when uh, mindfulness practices come into schools, it's really important to see this as a, uh, a practice for society. Because when young people are taught mindfulness practice, one of the things they're learning is how to delay gratification how when something's unpleasant, you don't have to do something about it. You can actually breathe with that. And that's why one of the great gifts meditating parents can give to their children is to model what it's like to be in an unpleasant feeling tone and not have to do anything about it. Everyone's in the car, you're stuck in traffic, Everyone's going out of their mind, and you don't have to, like, freak out about it. Like, we're never going on a road trip again, <laughs> or whatever the thing, you know. Or, like, let's stop and get everybody chocolate. Or, like, if kids see that an adult can tolerate the unpleasant, it really helps them learn how to do that by osmosis, through modeling. And if kids have, as parents, uh, people who can't tolerate the unpleasant or the pleasant, 
then uh, that's what they start to learn, right? That's what they learn. So this is really important. And, yeah. So when you think about youth who are incarcerated and you think about their stories through this lens, you can imagine that if you were in their situation and they are, you know, 12 years old and one night they did some really stupid thing that changed their life forever, someone else's life forever, caused so much damage, that that moment they took that unskillful action was a moment when they couldn't tolerate something in them, something moving through them that was unpleasant. Yes, you can talk about systematic violence and many, many other factors, but when that energy came through that body, they couldn't tolerate that unpleasantness. And so they acted out. And if you think in your own life about times you've done things that have been really hurtful, there are probably moments where you felt some unpleasant vedana, this feeling tone, and you couldn't turn it around. So the injunction here is, turn things around. And then you'll see in brackets, oh, but there's these footnotes you should know about. How do you turn things around? The first thing is, know when something is unpleasant and know when it's unpleasant. If you experience something unpleasant, it's so powerful to name it and just go, oh, unpleasant. And the people who have the hardest time doing this are people with psychology education <laughs> or people who read self-help books. Sometimes they're both those people, both those things. <laughs> and the reason is, is because you have such a sophisticated language around your emotions, but you don't necessarily know how to connect with just the raw sensation of unpleasant. Because you have like such a good analysis of the other person <laughs> who caused all this unpleasantness in your life. <laughs> okay, so, that's, so there's three parts to turning things around. The first part is knowing when something's unpleasant and knowing when something's pleasant. And being able to watch for the aversion and the grasping that comes with that feeling to them. The second is um, the three poisons. <clears throat> that at the core of all craving is uh, three poisons. Greed, anger, and confusion. I won't get into those so much, but um, let's just say that at the core of our grasping, at the core of all of our craving, is um, either greed or anger or confusion, delusion, just being completely deluded about what's happening. Okay. To know those and how they operate in you is how you turn things around. It's kind of a really positive, I think, message here. Is that you should know that in you, you have the capacity for greed, the capacity for anger, and the capacity for confusion. And if you don't get to know those energies in you, then it's going to be really hard to turn things around. And then the last way we turn things around are the three virtues. The Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Buddha means your capacity to be awake. Your capacity to wake up. It's not referring to the historical Buddha. 
but it's referring to that capacity in all of us to be awake, to really wake up. I don't mean to wake up like you've woken up and then suddenly everything's good. I mean like every moment to wake up. You fall asleep, you wake up. Oh, sleeping, oh, wake up. Dharma refers to everything that wakes us up. Walls, floors, bells, gold, what was this called again? Golden potion, turmeric drink, tangerines. Well, maybe that's going too far. Um, Dharma is everything. Everything that wakes us up. And when we look at everything as something that can wake us up, so you look at the first two combined, then you get Sangha. So if you see that everything can wake you up, then you get Sangha, which means community. There's no Sangha without Buddha and Dharma. So Sangha is community. And there's two ways to understand community. The first is, as I just explained, when Buddha and Dharma are lined up, so when you see how everything wakes you up, then you start to recognize how you're constantly in community, which doesn't have to be just human beings. You're constantly in community. You have this whole complex community even in your gut of living things. In our lifetime, in the next few decades, they say this will be the main focus of uh, mental health research. We'll be analyzing the community of your gut. That's exciting. Okay, so where was I? The second way to describe Oh, yeah. Sangha. The second way to describe Sangha, which maybe is a little more um, connected to what all of us need on a weekly basis, is um, being in relationship to other people who have a practice that inspires you. Sometimes, because um, especially the yoga world um, is a business that involves paying rent, um, we start to sometimes focus on community as how many numbers are in a room. And of course we do. We have to think about the bottom line. That's part of our practice, is to think about numbers in a room. But the heart of any community is always having people in the community who are inspiring because they know how to work with their suffering, they have a dedicated practice, and maybe they're like a little bit ahead of you on the path of being less neurotic. <laughs> you hang out with them and you really see in their behavior that they are not as neurotic as you are. <laughs> and that's Sangha. That's Sangha. So you could say that Sangha might just be one other person. To have one other person that you have a weekly relationship with who has a practice that really inspires you to practice. Because everything that I'm saying here, like, is, they're all good ideas, and I'm sure it's nice to listen to, but it's really hard to have confidence that this stuff really works unless you see it working in someone else's life. Like, I see it working in the lives of students that I work with, and it inspires me so much. So that when I'm with them, they teach me so much. And then they would probably say the same thing about me, but I can't see it. Because I'm still all neurotic. <laughs> so you said that really nicely, and then I lost it about... <laughs> That's what I mean. That's why you need other people around right, right. on a weekly basis. Right. Yeah. 
No, but the way you were describing the, the qualities of what makes somebody inspiring. They have a practice. They, uh, they, they have a practice. They know how to suffer. They're less neurotic than you. I don't know what else to say, really. It's just, it can just be one person. I was just going to add one thing, is the Buddha had this really great term he used to use back in the day <laughs> called um, Dukkha Dukkha, which I really love. When you see it on a page, it looks like a printing error, but this word was used a lot, Dukkha Dukkha, the suffering of suffering. And it, it, it's a reference to the suffering that comes from not being able to be with suffering. It's a really great term, Dukkha Dukkha. So if you're ever in that state and someone calls you and they're like, how are you doing? And it's, you're in that, you just say, dukkha, dukkha. <laughs> <laughs> the suffering of not knowing how to be with your suffering. So just, just to sum up and then, yeah. So this aphorism, this slogan is saying, this bumper sticker is saying, turn things around. You can turn things around. How do you turn things around? If something's really unpleasant, just know that it's unpleasant. Doesn't that sound so simple? But it's so hard to label unpleasant, you know? And that's one of the things about having a stillness practice is you're sitting under language and you're training yourself how to have radar for sensations that you can attune to that are not mental states, you see? That are not reactive states either. Then the second thing is know about your capacity for greed, anger, and delusion, which we could spend the whole weekend on. And then last is, um, <clears throat> Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And these are ways of turning things around. Different ways we can turn things around. Yeah? Well, we're discussing here these experiences that are either pleasure, pleasure, pain. Yeah. It seems so subjective. Yeah. There are things that I do in my life that are yeah. joyous to me that people just consider suffering. And yeah. I do that the same way. Yeah. And so in my experience, I'm basically convinced that all experiences are neutral. And the only reason that I'm experiencing pleasure and pain is from what I'm painting on it. And I even go as extreme as like, you know, burning and stuff like that. Because yeah. it's so subjective, right? There are people yeah. that get pleasure out of what I consider some pretty strange things. And maybe if, it, if it's one person 20,000 years ago that did it once and felt pleasure out of it, Mm -hmm. It's then, as far as I'm concerned, an experience that could create pleasure, and it's so abstract that there is no like pleasure and pain. It's just what we're painting on it. I feel like part of me is conflicted in even mentioning this because it's like this other step. You're trying to bring stuff down to like our real lives. That well, it's painful. You know, like that's just yeah. Like, in your subjective experience. In my subjective yeah. experience, but I can almost it's somewhat depressing in my life these days. But yeah. I almost take pleasure out of every pleasurable experience uh -huh. and the pain out of all the painful experiences uh -huh. by knowing that they're just, it's nothing against me, it's, not, yeah. it's just these things are happening all the time. People are dying, right. waves are coming, snows. Oh no, but those are ideas. We're just talking about the sensation of pleasant and unpleasant. Right, and I'm saying that knowing the sensation. Me, yeah. I take it as a practice, I'm like, well, why is this pleasurable? Can I like... Oh, but we're not even talking about that why. We're just saying, know that it's pleasant, know that it's unpleasant. As soon as you get into the why and the concepts around it and what you can do with it, that's not the pleasant, unpleasant practice anymore. Pleasant, unpleasant is just knowing pleasant, knowing unpleasant. If what is pleasant for you is unpleasant for someone else, that doesn't matter. Right. 
It's just in your subjective experience knowing it. And just the last thing is, so within myself, I feel like I'm, I'm very intuitive with what's pleasant and unpleasant. Yeah. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that I can almost be like, oh, that's super pleasant. And then be like, well, like, why? Just because I painted my expectations and it happened the way that I wanted to. Right. I can easily turn it around and say, yeah. you know, this doesn't exist. It's just something that's happening. So, right. No, okay. And that's what it's saying, turn it around. Yeah. yeah, turn it around. It's really good to turn it around. Sometimes, somebody is so mired in their reactivity that they can't turn it around. So think about how many psychological conditions of distress involve somebody who's so numbed out that they can't tune into what they feel. So they have to do things to their body or do things to other bodies in order to feel something, right? So there are so many examples of this, certain forms of drug use, cutting, um, hurting other bodies. I mean, it just goes on and on and on in order for people to just feel something, right? And think about, I don't know about what, I don't know about Oregon, but there's a huge problem in Canada right now with opioid use, right? So you combine trauma and people who have learned how to numb with opioid use, where actually your whole neurological system starts to change so that you can't actually feel as much anymore, which is why you need more fentanyl or whatever. Um, which they say now is how Prince died. Right, which is the fentanyl he was taking just wasn't working anymore because you know your body suddenly needs a lot more. And the symptom of fentanyl is your respiration stops. Right, that's the main problem with fentanyl overdose is that your respiration stops. And that's, that's, he, that's how he died. So, where was I? Numbing. Numbing, yeah. So the problem with all this is that you don't, you lose track of pleasant and unpleasant. Because of all this reactivity you have around feeling tone, right, feeling tone. So how do you turn things around? Well, the job of a counselor, the job of a therapist is to very carefully help bring someone back in their body so they can start to safely experience basic tone of feeling again. And the problem with some drug use is that um, it can actually change your system to such a great degree that it's really hard to get back to uh, earlier settings. That was a bit of a tangent. But I have a question. Um, you mentioned that in Buddhist psychology there's differentiation between emotion and feeling and that mm -hmm. most of what we think about is our emotional life yes. feeling tone and mental state. Mm -hmm. I remember reading somewhere, I think this is Western psychology though, that somebody was, was talking about the difference between emotion and feeling. There are like five emotions, like only five basic emotions. Mm. Does Buddhist thought on like what would be termed an emotion have a name for them, like joy or anger or yeah. fear? Yeah. Would those be considered emotions versus feeling? I don't know. Okay. Maybe we won't, they're still considered mental states rather than the word emotions. Would emotion be like Ananda Maya Kosha, like equanimity or compassion? Mental states. Those are still just mental states. Yeah. Okay. But if you're really interested in this idea, but a non-Buddhist version of this idea, and you wanted to learn more about emotions and how they function, there's a researcher, uh, I think she's at Stanford University, named Jean... Tsai, T-A-S-I, who does mind-blowing research where she looks at emotions in relationships and then compares them cross-culturally. Oh. Like to try and, yeah. because emotions are relational, right? Mm -hmm. And how people express emotions are relational. So then she starts to ask a really interesting question, like why do people of Chinese ancestry, even if they're born in the United States, not 
show depression in the same way that somebody whose parents are from Ireland who lives in the United States shows depression and then why will some go to therapy and some won't go to therapy and mm -hmm. like she's it's really complex so um, check out her work it's like, I'm really into it I'm writing about it right now oh, good. Renee mm -hmm.
in, in yeah. the exercise before lunch, where, where we were taking out uh, pain. Yeah. It was yeah, intensely unpleasant, but there was some good feelings in yeah. caring deeply about others at the yeah. same time, and, and I and I have find great confusion in separating those two. Yeah. It's surprising how you can feel both at the same time, pretty much. Yeah. I have a hard time with the, like, feeling being awake, like, knowing that I'm one of those people and I have a very high tolerance for suffering. I tend to feel, um, I don't just, from my own life experience, yeah. um, and know, I mean, I can go wherever you all go, you know, like, I'll go with you there. But um, I have a hard time just navigating the general population of children and spend a lot of time in the, the you know, the part of the world and whatever. And um, I just find that it's hard to, I feel unmet a lot in my community. It's not that hard. I mean, I don't know if that's the kind of community you're talking about, but um, I, I find that to be really, really painful um, mm. to feel like I can see things that. And I don't feel like my community really sees it. Yeah. I think that's my biggest yeah. challenge in my life right now is Sangha. In yeah. my, uh, the things that got me really kind of jazzed and juiced in yoga and in spiritual community, yeah. um, I, I find that less and less. Mm -hmm. And um, I think you'll all appreciate the story at some level of our amusement, but um, I own another business that employs a lot of service industry people for bars and restaurants. I just heard about this today. I didn't yeah. know that you owned that. Yes. And so I went to a trade show in Las Vegas a week after Donald Trump won the election. Uh -huh. And all of my friends in Portland are, you know, with a lot of suicide watch and you know, like, yeah. hold visuals to make sure nobody just let go. Um, so I, I go to Las Vegas, and the keynote speaker of this is uh, the person who's the CEO of Carl's Jr. Targets, and he's the number one bundler for Donald Trump. So he raised the most money collectively out of anybody to help Donald Trump get elected. And he's very pro-Trump, and the audience there is very pro-Trump, and it's all kind of like old white guys and blue blazers. Um, and the man gave a speech. And the one thing that really struck me when I was sitting there listening to it was he, he was talking about how to improve a lot of the workers in our businesses, which is something that I really believe in passionately because I don't, like I can't relate to Standing Rock because I understand that it's suffering as a disenfranchised people and that's important, but I just don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. But I know that I can help people in front of me. Mm -hmm. And so that's easier for me to to and really care about. And so this person is talking about, he's saying we can pass all the legislation in the world to say, increase the minimum wage or provide this benefit or do this. But at the end of the day, if we can have a thriving economy, that will unlock all of these things. And then all, all of us have the potential to share. But if we don't actually have businesses that run well and, and work well, then all these other things don't matter. And I thought that was really insightful, and I thought it was a very like balanced view that sort of cut across all these different ideologies and sort of tired arguments. And I really felt this sense of like sangha in this like group of people that I was like, why am I even here? But but I was like, and they like cheered and they were so excited and like I was like, these people are so happy about Trump and like. I'm kind of like, this is cool just because I like being around like happy people that are stoked about something. Wow. And, you know, there's a million other problems and I'm not trying to minimize it, but like I felt very genuine that like, I felt like connection to like how I could have action in my life and have inspiration. Hmm. And it didn't come from sort of the places that I was expecting. Wow. And, yeah. I don't really know what to do with it all in terms of like having a, a weekly sun because mm -hmm. I felt like it was sort of that serendipity or like the lightning in the bottle mm -hmm. that I don't think I could ever recreate. Mm -hmm. um, but I felt it was a very important sort of moment yeah. in my life. Yeah. Um, and I really 
really struggle with how to um, find that motivation and inspiration in any structured way. And I don't even know if that's possible. Yeah. Always, this is always like this because, you know, in psychotherapy we have this thing called the doorknob syndrome. You heard of this? So it's like you have a fine session, you know, and then at the end of the session, someone's leaving, they put their hand on the doorknob, and just as they're about to walk out the door, all the important things start. <laughs> um, I'm aware also that it's four o'clock, and this is our, our time for movement. Um, but if it's okay, can I respond to some of these things? Yeah. Um, I mean, all of you have said different things, but really important things. The, the first thing is just around community. Uh, we all need community so much. And um, if you don't feel that you have the community that you need, then just make the one that you need. <laughs> like for real. So, um, like there's this thing in Portland called Sola School. Have you heard of this? <laughs> yeah. It's these two women, Renee and Sarah, and they just didn't have the kind of environment for teaching their peculiar version of socio-political anatomy geek caregiving yoga. Is that, can I describe it like that? That they wanted to express. That suddenly has now turned into art yoga or something. And, uh, and so they just started a community. And, you know, I don't know a lot about the history of peoples, but I think it's pretty evident when you get to know uh, Michelle and um, what she believes in, that like she really cares about people and really cares about community and really cares about having a space for people to, to gather and to be together. And, um, and like knowing you, as many years as I've known you, you've created a space for people to have joy and sing songs. Um, <laughs> um, so <coughs> you've created a lot of different kinds of spaces actually. So, Maybe they need to evolve also to mirror more what you need in your life, just as everyone else's spaces keep evolving to mirror how the times change and the, the, people, change, the people change. Like I noticed, I was reading a newspaper, the local Portland newspaper, and the scene is, the, the, co the cover was about lesbian bars in Portland. What's that? Yeah, and it was about like who killed lesbian bars in Portland. And it was this really interesting article when they were asked, where they were asking, did the bar owners burn out? Or um, have times changed and people don't identify with lesbian in the same way they used to and don't necessarily need a lesbian bar? And they interviewed the owners of like the original lesbian bars who were saying like nowadays if you wanted a successful lesbian bar business, you shouldn't market it as lesbian bar. <laughs> so it was really interesting. It just organically happen that way. No, no, just you shouldn't like confine it to just lesbian bar. Um, and we don't have to get into that whole discussion now, but um, the point is, is that we need adaptable environments that are not um, rigid, that can deal with the situations that we're all in. And, um, and can speak to them. And when they stop speaking to them, they'll go empty or get filled with fundamentalists. Um, and sometimes you have to do things like if you want to learn how to sit and you want to sit still with other people, sometimes you just have to go to your local Buddhist center and just go sit. And even if you don't like the teacher or something, it doesn't matter, it's still dharma's happening. And you can still go there and practice. It's still Dharma practice. And some generations the teachers are good and some generations the teachers aren't good. It's just the way it is. So. Thank you very much.
for being here. Um, I love coming to Portland so much. And um, <clears throat> um, I won't make this the final goodbye because I'll wait until we do some movement practice. Um, but I, I will say that um, uh, everybody's participation was really meaningful and I, I learned a lot. Um, and uh, I care so much about all of you and this community here in Portland. Even though you might not feel, oh, this isn't my community. I hope he doesn't think this is my community. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually uh, our community, and um, it is what we practice. So I hope you'll take uh, these trainings in compassion, especially during holiday season, and study them and get to know them, and, um, and uh, keep them close to your heart. So thank you. Um, I'm not disappearing, so um, I'll be here uh, through to the end of the day. Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.